The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast over to our next guest who other better than to talk about the economy we have steve matthews economy reporter at bloomberg news who's going to join us to talk about the latest when it comes to the federal reserve also james bullard set to leave the central bank but first i want to get your thoughts just overall on the economy steve because we did just get these big banks especially when you're thinking about jp morgan wells fargo city reporting about not just of course their earnings more backward looking this came over a tumultuous time when you think about the regional banks and the stresses that the banking industry went over, especially in the spring. What do you think this tells us about the direction and trajectory of the economy when you see these results? Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. I mean, the the Fed has been looking at the economic data, but they've also been watching very carefully what's happening with the banking sector. And the reports we've gotten so far are kind of a green light for more interest rate hikes. I mean, the banks seem to be doing fine. Uh, You know, there was a worry when we had three moderately big failures in March that, okay, this could kind of lead to, you know, another series of bank failures and and there could be some volatility and and who knows where it, it would end up. And basically right now, things seem pretty calm and the the big banks are doing you know better than expected i mean the stock yeah look at jp morgan and and some of the others uh you know the one caveat there is the fed is really probably more focused on the regional banks and a lot of the regional banks and, and to see how how they are doing and and a lot of those won't report until you know next week or, or even the week after Did we get any indicators so far from some of these major banks um, about how the regional banks might perform? Because remember, you know, at that moment of crisis, we saw a lot of deposits flood to these major folks, um, whereas some of the more regional players were left on the sidelines. Uh, Or are we really waiting until next week for the for the uh, verdict on this? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in the reality is we're probably w- waiting for next week. But these banks have done well. You know, their interest margins are are doing well. Uh, you know, their creditworthiness is fine. You know, there's been a lot of worry about uh, commercial real estate. That doesn't seem to be a huge issue. I mean, it, it's a huge issue going a- ahead because you have all of these office buildings. Uh, that are damaged by work from home, but in this quarter, it's it's not a particular issue. So it, 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 the caveat again is that the the uh, regional banks have a lot more exposure to commercial real estate than you know, for example, uh, J.P. Morgan. Hey, Steve, something that struck me looking at Citi's results. So it did get a boost when it comes to credit cards, but. Part of that was actually due to borrowers that were starting to struggle. You cover the economy so closely. What do you think this tells us about consumer spending right now? Well, it, that's interesting. And we, as you pointed out earlier, we also just got the, the Michigan uh, Consumer uh, Index, Sentiment Index. And sentiment of, of consumers has been fairly dire uh, the last uh, couple of years. And, and we saw a huge pickup in sentiment, both for you know how consumers are looking at current conditions how they're looking for expectations much higher than anyone expected uh and you know that's kind of suggests that consumer attitudes are are uh are getting a little bit better i mean if this if this sticks uh uh you know the the thing that's driving this to a certain extent is inflation is coming down uh, so you're having disinflation. We had three percent inflation. Uh, at the same time, 
uh, people's pay has been boosted uh, recently because of the inflation. If you look at the the average wages in the Atlanta Fed's uh, wage tracker, uh, are running 5.6% year over year. So people are getting real wage gains. And to the extent that people are getting real wage gains, they have the ability to spend. Uh, so, you know, yeah, it, it, it's also a story of, of, as you point out, of, of, of different segments. It's like, you know, the rich are getting are getting richer to, to a certain extent. I mean, the, a lot of the spending comes from the, the top half of the uh, demographic segment. Um, you know, to that end, you mentioned the uh, consumer prices. We we got those numbers in earlier this week. We also got producer prices. I mean, we see to ha- seem to have uh, two different narratives there. One that consumer prices and producer prices are starting to disinflate <laughs> at the same time as we have all this optimism, which really goes against the Fed, the traditional economic theory that, you know, the Fed really needs to cause some kind of slowdown in the economy. Which numbers is the central bank watching most closely? Well, if you listen to Fed Chair Powell, he's very focused on the labor market. I mean, there, there are, as you point out, two schools of thoughts. There, there's the Phillips curve thought that unemployment has to you know, uh, go up for inflation to come down, and that there's this big relationship between the two. And, you know, a lot of the older Fed leaders basically buy into that kind of labor market view of inflation. But there's also some people who are pushing back on it, like Austin Goolsby of the Chicago Fed, uh, you know, and even Jim Bullard, who is, is re- retiring. Uh, you know, say that the relationship isn't all that clear. And we have had disinflation so far without any labor market pain. And, you know, now there's a big debate at the Fed is like, can this continue or do we need to see some pain uh, for uh, to to get back to 2% inflation? And that's going to be the big debate when the Fed starts meeting. Today, um, among other things, today is the last day we get Fed speak before the uh, uh, before the July uh, meeting, and then we go into a, a self-imposed blackout. So, you know, right. it, it, it'll be an interesting debate. <laughs> and Steve, we only have about 30 seconds left, but we have to, you brought up James Bullard, who's set to leave the central bank. How tricky is this for the Fed's trajectory moving forward when you have a hawk like that who's about to leave? Yeah, I mean, I think in the short term, uh, Bullard's highly influential. Uh, He definitely carried more than his single vote because everybody paid attention to him, including the markets. Uh, But uh, Powell has firm control on the committee. So if if he wants to hike, he clearly wants to hike in uh, in July. You know, whether we get a second hike or not will be basically up up to Powell. He he can continue to do it if he if he wants. All right, Steve. Matthews, economy reporter at Bloomberg News. Always a pleasure getting your take on all things when it comes to the trajectory of economic growth. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Jessamine and Simone Foxman here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. And on a day when you're looking at these bank earnings, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup all reporting this morning, especially if you're looking at J.P. Morgan revenue soaring to a record, really boosted by Fed interest rate hikes. And also looking over at Wells Fargo, those earning more net interest income than analysts did expect and really helping giving a boost to the broader equity market this Friday. But who better to come in and speak with us and break down these latest earnings results from the big banks than Allison Williams, Senior Global Banks and Asset Manager Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks so much for joining us in studio, Allison. What's your takeaway once we got these first batch of big banks this morning? 
So I would say, uh, obviously, the net interest income upside at all the banks and the and the higher guidance, especially with respect to net interest income, is is positive. But I think it was sort of expected by um, investors. We when you looked at the run rate um, for these banks, you could tell that their previous guidance was a little bit conservative. I think the most impressive thing that we saw this morning was the 25% return on tangible equity at JP Morgan. Um, so that is helped by the net interest income, also helped by the better capital markets business, um, costs in line, and provisions rising, as we would expect uh, with normalizing credit. And so across the banks, we're seeing you know, trading down a little bit, but still um, normalizing within historically higher levels. Uh, fees, M&A is really the big headwind there, as expected. Equity fees uh, up a bit. Um, we're seeing some green shoots there, but we still expect that fees are setting at a lower level. Um, expenses basically in line where, you know, there is some higher severance adding to those costs, especially flagged by Wells Fargo. And then on the provision side, we are seeing re reserve building. Uh, again, Wells Fargo, which is the biggest commercial real estate lender, adding uh, related to office profit properties. That's not a surprise. It's an area that everyone's watching. And then that card growth, um, mm. really, that we're seeing in the loans also means that banks are adding reserves. Well, we'll dig into some of the details there. But as, as someone who uh, is not as enmeshed in, in the banking uh, nitty-gritty. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's not something that's uh, particularly fantastic as a, as a uh, finance reporter. However, I, would, I want you to rank, uh, differentiate for me between um, J.P. Morgan, whose shares up uh, percent today, Citigroup down over 1%, uh, and Wells Fargo somewhere in between. I mean, is that the ranking that we're seeing in terms of who's best, who's worst in our earnings report out today? Yeah, so I would say uh, JP Morgan, um, again, having the strongest quarter and they're they're in their best position for the long term, right? So they've been in this virtual, virtuous cycle of spending on technology, that technology benefiting them with a competitive advantage, especially in business like deposit gathering and uh, the global investment banking business. Um, with regard to Citigroup, uh, Jane Frazier really, I think, making all the right decisions there. But uh, that's really a longer term story. I mean, that, that bank has been, um, you know, trying to sort of revitalize itself and, and fix some things for a significant period of time. Uh, one thing that they have in Commonwealth Fargo is uh, that they're spending a lot of money on the regulatory and compliance side just um, to get things in order. And so um, Citigroup probably has the most opportunity for improvement. I think they're delivering on everything that um, Jane has said. It's just a longer path. With mm. Wells Fargo, um, so again, I, I talked about the regulatory um, side of things and those costs, but they're, I think, hope, hopefully for Wells Fargo getting to the end of that journey. It's, it's been certainly much longer than people have thought. Um, but again, better net interest income. You know, Card is a much smaller business for them, but they're, you know, that's been a business that they're investing in and that's um, been paying off. Commercial real estate, as I said, is they're the biggest lender there. Um, so I think it's prudent that they're taking provisions related to the office, even though that's going to be a long story. Allison, I wanted to get your thoughts when it comes to banking regulation, because we did hear from Fed Vice Chair Michael Barr, as you know, earlier this week, talking about how there could be these potential regulatory changes. And on J.P. Morgan's call this morning, Jeremy Barnum, the CFO at the bank, did receive a question about Basel III, asking about what kind of market consequences. And CEO Jamie Dimon was actually warning about in his intro when he cited that these upcoming finalized rules, um, Barnum actually did call some of the proposals, quote, excessive. So, I mean, do you think regulators are listening? And, and what is your kind of view of how uh, the banks are thinking about these potential proposals? So uh, I, I would say two things. So first of all, I mean, the proposals are a long time in coming. I think investors, managements, we all want to know what the rules are um, so we can sort of, you know, get on with with understanding what the, what the final end game will be and that's sort of what they're called the Basel 3 end game rules 
Um, that being said, we still have sort of this volatility of the ongoing stress test, so that creates a lot of noise. But the second thing, um, again, you'll hear from bank management and I think bank investors is, you know, the, the rules are designed to make banks safe, but what are the unintended consequences? How much lending is being pushed out of the system? It's no secret that private credit is really one of the fastest growing areas of asset management. Um, alternative managers are focusing on this area of the business. Traditional managers are buying into the business. And to the extent that this uh, credit lending is being pushed outside of the banking system, you know, the, the risks don't go away. It just, I guess it's where those risks are. Speaking of risks, one of them earlier this year was from that regional banking um, crisis, perhaps, though it does seem to have uh, dissipated to some degree. JP Morgan seeing a $2.7 billion gain uh, in its first Republic per purchase. What signals is some of the commentary that we've heard from these executives this morning sending about you know, other banks, regional banks that are looking to report next week? You know, is, are, are there uh, still concerns alive and well in that space or have we gotten past that? I, I would say, um, if anything, uh, perhaps the fears might be quelled a bit. There is, you know, certainly a differential between some of these big banks and some of the regional banks. But I think in general, what we saw, even, even as early as April and with the uh, first quarter result reporting season, we did hear most bank management saying things had stabilized. And so we have seen that this quarter. Um, the, as the turmoil sort of subsided and deposits subsided, investors obviously have focused on the cost of deposits. Those are rising, but again, I think um, a little bit um, better than feared that we've seen at the big banks. I think one differentiator that we might see, a, a key one for these big banks versus the regional banks is more on the loan side of things, because credit card is really um, a much bigger exposure for uh, Citigroup, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo to a lesser extent, but still more than some of these regional banks. And what we are seeing is weakness in commercial and industrial balances, uh, loan balances. We saw that in the Fed industry data, and we're seeing it at the banks, and that may weigh a little bit more on the regionals. And I think, you know, from a broader perspective, back to your point about the bank uh, turmoil is we will be watching deposits. Are these bigger banks um, continuing to benefit or you know, have things pretty much stabilized for everyone? My guess is it's probably more of the latter. And for the bigger banks next week, we have Goldman, obviously Morgan Stanley, Bank of America. We only have about 30 seconds left, but what's the big thing you wanna watch when it comes to those particular banks? For, uh, you know, for, for Bank of America, pretty much the highlights I've hit, how is net interest income holding up their cost of deposits um, and and i balances, but they might get some benefit from card. Goldman and Morgan Stanley, we're really going to see um, the M&A weakness feed into those results on a, on a negative way. We'll be looking for the equity uh, green shoots. We'll be looking to see what happened with headcount. Um, and severance costs um, as that sort of looks to the second half. And then, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs has a few specific things that are going to damp their results, um, but we'll be looking at their trading to see how that share holds up. And then Morgan Stanley will be looking at the wealth business, how the flows look. Uh, right. There's some seasonal issues, but hopefully better than improved from there. Great. Well, Allison Williams, Senior Global Banks and Asset Manager Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Always a pleasure having you join us. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Justin and Simone Foxman here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We're going to change things up next and talk about student loan forgiveness. And we're going to have Janet Lauren, higher education finance reporter here with Bloomberg News, joining us on Zoom to talk about this. And especially looking at the Biden administration set to forgive $39 billion in student debt. This does come after the Supreme Court did strike down that broader debt forgiveness plan. So talk to us, Janet, about this and, and kind of break it down what's the latest on this news here 
Great. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is a little bit different than the um, what was being proposed that the Supreme Court uh, shut down. This was sort of administrative changes to a longstanding program called income. These are all income-based repayment programs. And it targets borrowers who are having trouble paying off their loans. And the, the issue here is, you know, if you look and look at these income-based repayment programs, they're kind of confusing. There's a lot of red tape. You have to show you've made payments. And this was, in some ways, a little bit of a surgical strike, um, updating more of a technical requirement. And it's quite an, it affects quite a number of bar, quite a hard number of borrowers, more than 800,000. And, uh, you know, and it forgives 39 billion in student loans. But this isn't, um, you know, an automatic forgiveness. These borrowers have been making payments for quite a long time. Tell me about the impact of this in comparison to the broader plan that the Biden administration had tried to push through. Give me a sense of scale. So the whole federal student loan program, we're talking about roughly $1.7 trillion. And that impacts everybody um, for decades who've been borrowing student loans. It also includes parents who've taken out Parent PLUS loans. And that forgiveness would have given uh, $10,000 to borrowers, $20,000 if you had a Pell Grant, which is uh, aimed at low-income students during college. And that was a one-time forgiveness. And critics, you know, said, you know, perhaps it's unfair to people who hadn't who've already paid back their loans, but it also doesn't really fix the overall problem of college costs continuing to grow up, to go up and up and up. And this and this sort of a surgical strike really addresses a program um, that borrowers have been making payments for. And income, there's a bunch of income-driven repayment programs. I think there may, may be as, as many as a half a dozen, and they're confusing. And, uh, you know, and this allows uh, payments that people have made um, to count towards these forgiveness, which is 20 or 25 years. And these income-driven payments are calculated based on your income. You have to reapply every year. You may not be paying anything. um, And as students start to think about repayment, um, which begins October 1st, they may want to learn more about these programs to see if they're they're eligible, that they may not have to make any payment at all when the the repayment plan starts in October. All right, Janet, so myself, along with millions of others who have a student debt here, if we want to figure out how we qualify, especially when it comes to a lot of these income-driven repayment plans that you're walking us through, what's the best way to figure it out? Just call up your servicer? Well, good, great question. Um, so the <laughs> servicers are the ones that um, are going to be getting information about repayment. However, you could actually go right now to FSA, you know, federal student aid, uh, and log on and, uh, and 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 go through the whole website and figure out what you might qualify for. There's a lot of information you could do now before you even hear from your servicer. Um, so that that's what I would recommend because the, the plans are kind of complicated. They are. And you know, <laughs> borrowers just make it a big headache trying to understand it. But at least go through there, you know, look at the website, look at the plans. Um, and if you've never, you know, there's something like seven or eight million people who've actually never made a payment because they've graduated from college in the last three, three and a half years. Um, go into the student loan site register get more information so you know exactly what you have it's you know if you if you're taking out a loan every year in college you have chances are eight loans they may all have different interest rates and it's quite confusing to keep track of everything who do you think gets left out of this well this particular program is for people who who have already left who've been already in these income driven payment programs so they're aimed at struggling borrowers, people who maybe are underpaid, they haven't had jobs, um, and uh, and that's who these are, are aimed towards. Um, you know, it, it's all going to depend, again, on your income. And if you sign up and just look at the at the department pages, you'll get a better sense of who, it, who these are targeted for. Janet, talk to me about how this fits into the overall Biden administration plan looking forward about... Uh, trying to forgive student debt. Are we going to see more piecemeal sort of developments at this after that uh, unfavorable Supreme Court ruling? Or will we see, is this just preparing us for a bigger push? 
Well, yes, you absolutely are going to see more of these because there are ways to sort of look at these in these uh, programs in particular. Um, in, in the press release that the Biden administration sent out earlier today, they talked about forgiveness that borrowers have already uh, received, such as $45 billion through uh, people who've worked through the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. That's a program where you make payments for 10 years and you um, you work in public service or a nonprofit and you get uh, forgiveness after 10 years. But again, this has been a really complicated program. They've made a lot of changes to make it easier. Uh, I think before these changes, something like the number of people who got forgiveness were extremely low because it's, again, the, the, the key word is it becomes very confusing. You know, if you switch jobs and you haven't signed up and you haven't, you know, made all the right. changes or your employer hasn't, you may not qualify. And then they also forgiven $22 billion for more than a million borrowers who were, you know, cheated by schools or their schools closed. Right. And these are typically for-profit colleges. And then you add these $39 billion and, you know, it's, it's not a small amount right. of money for loan forgiveness. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Janet Lauren, higher education finance reporter with Bloomberg News, joining us to talk about President Biden today announcing this another move when it comes to forgive student loan forgiveness. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Jess Mitten here with Simone Foxman in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And I want to get straight to our next guest, Ethan DeVitt, CIO at Monita, joins us to talk about this week's inflation data when we're looking at consumer uh, CPI, as well as producer prices, along with the latest on the outlook when it comes to all things with markets and investing. Thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to start off and just kind of get your view and your take of the latest market action today in the equity market on the back of these bank results and the earnings from JP Morgan and others when it comes to city that's dragging things a little bit lower in the financial sector. Well, the financial sector has really probably not had the attention it deserves given what a hotbed of chaos it was in the first quarter and towards the end of that. It did seem that that regional bank crisis got swept under the carpet a little and it wasn't fully understood how that was going to ripple through the economy. So I think it's appropriate. We saw in the last few weeks the the significant write downs by the likes of Bank of America and just this bond market has taken its toll on bank stocks. And what we can see from the regional banking sector is just how exposed they are to quite a fickle consumer and depositor essentially when trouble starts to brew. So we've always suggested that it would take some time to really fully understand what kind of problems the banking sector was facing. And when we see these kind of very mixed picture coming out of banks, you know, certainly some we're seeing a bit of a pickup and some trading and assets are asset pools are growing thanks to equity markets. It's only natural that investors will start to try to dissect that, pick and choose where the opportunities are. So I'd say we have not seen the end of this banking crisis yet. So that's why it doesn't surprise me that there's a little bit of, um, of, I suppose, just a little bit of just a delay in terms of processing this and less exuberance than we might expect. Ethan, so you're saying not the end of the banking crisis yet. How do you expect to see this play out when we get some of the regional banks, some of the other banks uh, come report their results next week? Well, certainly there is a lagging effect always in these bank results. We only know at the end of the quarter how deposits had moved. And we only know then, of course, when what write downs, if any, are being taken on a fixed income book. So with the Fed's looking set to continue its increase in rates, that's going to still put pressure on some of these securities holdings. This was perhaps an unintended consequence of the steepest rate rise trajectory we've seen in recent history, um, but it was not unanticipated. It should have been anticipated that this would take its toll somewhere after the bear market we had in bonds last year. So what I expect is that we can see that regional banks have seen no pickup 
We've seen no bottom fishing almost whatsoever within those banks since the trouble started brewing back in February, March. So I'd say that indicates that investors are very happy to sit on the sidelines when it comes to financials today and will remain on those sidelines. There's more than enough to attract them elsewhere in the, in the equity sectors that are looking more promising out of more upside today. So I expect a very low level of enthusiasm around financials. And as far as what the, the regional banks are likely to come out with, I think it's going to be challenging. I think they may spin it in different ways, but it will be challenging. So then how are you advising clients to position at this point? Where do you think they should put their money? We have always had a very, it's, it's almost like a, our, our message doesn't change. We, we talk about core exposures. We like to have exposures across growth and value segments. We like exposures that are international in flavor that include emerging markets, developed markets, ex-US, and of course, a very strong core allocation to the US. None of that changes. So we're, we're still quite keen on that. And I'd say what we're advising is to, to look at the underloved sectors. Everyone's talking about the top seven stocks today. Those stocks that are really showing and lifting the market almost single-handedly, those seven. Everything else is lagging and is very lackluster year to date. Since the numbers are better than expected, the consumer, the economy, everything's stronger than expected. We think that that goodwill should trickle down across sectors. So we'd expect that other sectors will start to participate more and more now. And therefore, for our clients, we're saying, stay invested in core, stay balanced, don't neglect value, look at the less perhaps exciting sectors today, less momentum, but around healthcare, industrials, consumer staples, that's where we think the next leg of this rally will happen. Now, even you mentioned uh, healthcare there. Um, in addition to the fact that you are quite healthy, have run uh, a fun fact here, a producer pointing out, 51 marathons. Amazing. <laughs> wow. So hopefully you do not have to uh, to rest on the services of the likes of United Health. Uh, the uh, health insurer reporting today um, had talked up these uh, these rising costs uh, in in its it, it, the potential for rising costs. People going back um, and getting all the elective procedures that they had put off during the pandemic. What's your thesis there? If healthcare is something that's among your winners uh, sector wise, it's interesting. There are certainly healthcare is undergoing transformation, just like many other industries, and certainly there may be this imbalance post COVID of as you mentioned, elective surgeries. I thankfully haven't needed anything to be replaced yet. Thank goodness. But I could stand the line <laughs> if I continue beating the, beating the sidewalk. Um, but so that, that one is, is one thing that is perhaps an anomaly that will work its way through. But with the advent of digital health, with more telemedicine, and particularly AI, and nobody's really paying a huge amount of attention to just how much AI is going to transform the healthcare industry, transform the insurance industry. I've spoken about financials before, we focused on banks. But when you look at more broad financials, insurers are overall winners here in the current transition to use of AI and bigger data because they can calculate with much more precision the risk involved in, in their insureds. And they can take this data and use it to do better underwriting. They do also have a certain amount of pricing power. As we all know, we're not exactly, when it comes to negotiating our car insurance, our house insurance, we're not always in a position of strength. It's usually the insurers that have that pricing power. So they're seeing really strong margins being protected. Um, digital health, of course, will ultimately drive costs down if we can use our telemedicine, if we can have more control in the, in the, in the holder and the patient of their healthcare, less reliance on expensive services. That, that trajectory is deflationary, we believe, for healthcare. However, yes, in the, in the short term, there probably will be the spike, which is the post-COVID reckoning that we're seeing in other sectors too. You brought up industrials, which I think is interesting because when you look at that particular group in the S&P 500, it's actually trading at records. And that's a particular group that, as you know, cyclically oriented, very tied to the health of the economy. What do you think this tells us about the trajectory of the equity markets, as well as how that ties in to economic growth? Well, this is the economy that is proving to be surprisingly resilient. And I think it's really bucking many commentators' expectations as to just when this recession, if it ever comes, will come. And in a way, it's almost an unbreakable economy. I wrote a piece today about how it's almost anti-fragile, to borrow Nassim Taleb's phrase, in the sense that no matter what monetary policy or fiscal policy throws at it, the economy continues to be resilient. And I'd say that, that I've also been hearing that there is an unprecedented amount of capital on the sidelines, on company balance sheets, 
to be spent on capex waves in some ways it's compared to post-war spending not only do we have this pent-up demand for spending because there hasn't been much during covid but also things like the inflation reduction act and the stimulus packages which are providing incentives to invest in those those technologies that are tied to the transition economy all of this bodes very well for industrials ai is going to require tremendous investment in um, in, in, in facilities, in, in chemicals, in stuff, in batteries, et cetera. And that's all going to bode well. So this is the trickle down effect. The first layer has been in tech stocks where you could naturally expect that we'd have more in terms of the um, in terms of the AI hype cycle. But now it's going to actually be implemented and the investments are going to happen. And just like cybersecurity is a non-negotiable part of a corporate spending trajectory right now, we're going to see investments in technology non-negotiable and that all bodes well for the component makers. Yeah, so looking beyond the semiconductors, the hot names, the NVIDIAs, uh, you know, even we only have about 30 seconds here, um, but talk to me, we've seen some contradictory indicators, one of them uh, being housing about where the future of the economy goes. Your quick thoughts, because we get some big numbers next week, what do you expect to see? Yeah, housing is, a, as you said, a mixed indicator. We have the, some of the highest mortgage rates we've seen in decades back to their peaks, but that doesn't seem to be biting the consumer. Many locked in their rates at lower levels. And we can also see this quite a mixed picture. We've seen the average price falling, but yet demand and housing starts rising. And that, of course, indicates how just how checkered this market is in that some of the, the hot segments say that the Nashvilles, the Florida, that will actually be, be, be quite strong. I'm here in the Midwest, in Chicago, we might see some of our pricing a little softer. So it's going to be mixed, um, definitely with the post-COVID economy, we're still seeing a strong demand for people to, to live in those houses with those home offices. And I think it, within the real estate segment, office is the, the, the sick, um, sick sector right now. Um, residential is quite robust. Ethan, thank you for giving us such a broad outlook on so many sectors um, where we head with uh, the U.S. economy. We really appreciate it. That's Ethan Devitt, CIO at Moneta with AUM, $27 billion, managing the money, looking at the markets. And some interesting thoughts there on housing, particularly as we head into a big week of data. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. And our next guest, Dr. Lisa Moreno, who's the president of Defense Metals, who's discussing the significance of China banning rare earth exports and how it affects the U.S. and production around the world. Joining us on Zoom. And please, can you set the scene for us and explain why is China banning rare earth metal exports at this point? Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, for having me. Uh, so China uh, has um, essentially said they are planning to impose um, export restrictions on some rare metals, uh, specifically gallium and germanium, which are critical for uh, semiconductor applications to make chips effectively. Um, so they have not yet imposed um, export restrictions on uh, other rare metals, uh, such as rare earth elements, which uh, we uh, at Defense Metals um, are planning to, to produce. Those are critical uh, for applications, for green applications, uh, like electric vehicles and wind turbines. But uh, it, is, it seems that uh, the fact that uh, China is imposing uh, some restrictions now on semiconductors, uh, it, it is uh, highly likely uh, that they would have um, uh, the power, certainly, uh, and potentially they might also impose uh, restrictions uh, on rare earth. You know, what's interesting here, as we've seen in the last couple of days, uh, according to a Shanghai metals market uh, report, they're a researcher in the space, that there was sort of a rush for overseas buyers to buy up as much Chinese gallium as they could, um, and then that sort of dissipated. What's your take? What have you heard uh, from folks that are looking to buy this, these sorts of metals? 
So usually these um, minor metals, um, they um, they are applied in small quantities. Um, you know, the volumes of sales are, are also significantly lower compared, for instance, with iron ore, which is in, in the billions of tons. And and so they they tend to um, buy them and, and, and keep them in advance for, for three to six months or, uh, or more sometimes. And, and so probably that's what we, we saw. So they went in, they, uh, with the news, they, they, some, some, some traders and, and some end users might have uh, stockpiled a little bit more to extend whatever um, you know, stockpiles they already have. Uh, which led to an increase in the price of gallium. And uh, and now they might just uh, perhaps sit back and see how uh, this, uh, I guess right now, a threat uh, from China uh, will play out um, and how the uh, U.S. and the rest of the world will respond uh, to that. And when you're talking about these potential chip curbs, my ears perked up because as an equities reporter here at Bloomberg, obviously, if you look at the Nasdaq 100, up more than 40%, a lot of this was juiced uh, by AI in recent months. Not just that, but also some margin um, when it comes to cost-cutting pressures that have helped some of those companies. But when you think about AI and the, and the companies you brought up, EV makers, and then these semiconductor-type companies that obviously have a broad exposure overseas, what do you think this means for them after this massive rally? that we've seen, especially in the chip space? Well, it seems that there has been, um, you know, some issues uh, with the supply of, of chips uh, in, in the last uh, couple of years, especially since since COVID. So uh, this export ban, considering that China uh, produces uh, most of the gallium in the world, I believe more than 90%, uh, if um, if they will impose uh, export restrictions, that means that many of these companies are not going to have uh, access to to the the basic uh, material that they need to make to make those chips. So that will uh, lead to uh, potentially a, an increase in prices uh, for for these chips and 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 uh, and, and supply issues. Mm-hmm. And, and so it just it just will mean that you know. The same problems we saw before. Automakers are not going to be able to make certain models, and and uh, you know, and folks in the telecommunications, uh, smartphone smartphone producers, and others might have a hard time um, producing um, their products. You know, we have some reporting out uh, suggesting that these export controls could potentially backfire. Your take on that? backfire for for China for China yes that I suppose other countries will um, ramp up their production to the extent that they can um, that it may hurt trade overall Uh, what's your take I think China is more concerned about having access to advanced chips right now and uh, and equipment that they need to, to to make them as well um, than uh, the supply uh, of gallium so I think they they understand that it will take time for for the rest of the world to be able to produce uh, the gallium and the, the, the gallium product products like uh, gallium arsenide that we need uh, for, uh, for 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 to make these advanced chips. So it is it will take time for the rest of the world to be able to ramp up production uh, of of gallium and mm-hmm. then build the supply chain to be able to produce these finished products that are critical for semiconductors. Uh, So um, the situation for China is already critical for them as far as having access to to this uh, equipment to make uh, chips, advanced chips, and and, and the chips as well that they are produced in the Netherlands and, and, uh, and in the United States. Lisa, thanks so much for breaking uh, this down for us. That's Dr. Lisa Moreno, president of Defense Metals Corp, um, discussing the significance of some of these China moves. And interestingly, the OECD has warned that these export restrictions may actually threaten the green transition. Um, Very interesting stuff as these China tensions with the U.S. seem to ramp up. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
Jess Mitten and Simone Foxman here once again in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And I always love this segment, the C-suite conversations. It really gets into the nuts and bolts of, especially when you think about what's going on with the Fortune 500. So I want to get straight to our next guest, Tiger Tia Garajan, CEO of GinPack. That's ticker symbol G for our terminal users who's joining us in studio on this Friday, which is very exciting. Always great to have someone in studio to discuss his company as well as AI's emergence. And I want to take a step back first, sort of show us the landscape of what your company does and who you work with, because I know you are working with a number of big Fortune 500 companies. Great. Thank you for having me here. And and the way we would describe our company is a professional services firm that works with about three quarters of the Fortune 500 companies. So think about a consumer goods company, a retailer, large banks, large Mm. insurance companies. And what we do for them is basically processing their finance, their procurement, their supply chain, the flow of information to make orders get delivered, to make inventory come down, to reduce cash flow requirements, to improve working capital, to reduce fraud and insurance claims. Mm -hmm. We process insurance claims, we process insurance applications. That's the work that we do and we do it in a very consolidated way, which then allows us to bring technology to improve the way it gets done and deliver better outcomes. So essentially the grunt work of doing a lot well, of- Well, we don't think stuff. it's grunt work. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it means that somebody yeah, does not have yeah. to sit there and open their email. That's right. I, we hear, we've heard over the last earnings season, um, every time a CEO would say yeah. AI on an earnings call, it felt like, you know, suddenly the shares would pop. Or, <laughs> even Kroger, lot, even Kroger mentioned yeah. it eight times. Yeah. So not, not even just tech companies anymore. <laughs> I mean, talk to me about what you've been hearing when you've heard, you know, these executives talk about AI. Are they talking about stuff that is going to mean, meaningfully impact and change their business today, tomorrow, or perhaps in the next year? So it's a great question, Simone. So the good news that for us is that not only do we listen to them when they come on to Bloomberg Radio and talk, but uh, we actually meet them uh, a lot because we serve them. And I would say clearly there is hype. So let's be clear. This is a hype. However, it's real. And you know, the way I would think about it is that if you think about the cell phone and iPhone, if you think about the internet, those were hypes, but it did end up being real. So like any hype, in the short term, I think we are overestimating its impact. But in the medium term, and the medium term could not be more than a couple of years, we are maybe underestimating the impact. And that's what every conversation with the CEOs say. When you're talking about overestimating the impact, from what perspective, as far as what about from a stock market perspective, when you've seen how much particular chip makers have moved on a lot of this hype, is that something that you think has been overdone? Or do you think it's more not from that perspective, but from maybe even a more fundamental perspective? Yeah, I'm assuming that the stock market moves less on short term and more on long term. Obviously, so therefore, it might actually be the right move because Mm -hmm. computing needs you know, therefore semiconductor needs, therefore power of all of that is going to, the demand for that is certainly going to go up a lot. For our clients, it typically boils down to where's the biggest impact I can deliver and what do I need to make that happen? Clearly large language models and AI models are very important, but guess what? You need data. And if you talk to typical large enterprises, that data is distributed, it's fragmented, it's corrupted, it's not clean. So there's a lot of effort that needs to bring that together to then be able to build and feed the algorithms that then deliver great value. And I think most CEOs understand that. Mm -hmm. However, they also know that once they get that together, then it's real value. It's improving their revenue. It's improving their uh, customer satisfaction. It's improving their ability to serve their customers on time in full. Is most of the work that you're doing on the back end from the company perspective, or is any of this is much of this, and how much are you seeing uh, this increase on the consumer-facing end? So, Simona, actually, interestingly, you know, our business, about half of it faces the front of our clients' businesses. So, if you think about a retailer, large retailers, placing an order for cheese or for chocolate, then how quickly can that order get delivered? Uh, can that order be delivered not only quickly, but exactly the way it was ordered? And can you make sure that it gets delivered with a high degree of efficiency of delivery in terms of transportation costs, logistics? And oh, by the way, these days, can you actually make sure that you don't burn up too much carbon 
when you're moving trucks across and how do you optimize all of that? How do you build algorithms and models that actually deliver that? Once you do that, the consumer goods company expects to be paid on time. So if you think about that whole cycle, that's all in the front end. Mm -hmm. When done well, everyone is thrilled. So this is about driving growth and customer satisfaction because then that cheese is available when the consumer walks into the retailer. I wanted to actually switch it up because I wanted to get your perspective on a key emerging market when it comes to India. That's something that we've discussed a lot on this program. What are your thoughts as far as just how big of a player that has been for a lot of especially big companies? Uh, it's, it's huge for us from a talent perspective. Let's start with that. Um, more than 40% of our talent, close to 50% of our talent uh, is, is based in India. And uh, that goes back to the history of the company when we were part of GE, when we set up this operation as an extension of GE to serve global GE from India. Now we deliver those services from 35 countries across the globe. So India is incredibly important, but so are many other countries. The talent pool in India is incredibly important as we go into the future. The fact that you have a younger demographic and when they come out, they are hungry to learn. And we are in a world where learning and reskilling is going to be the ticket to everyone's party. Uh, so we use that and leverage that for our clients, and our clients understand that. There is a different perspective about India being a market itself, and that demographic population creates a real opportunity. And the third one is how much can India becoming a manufacturer base to diversify out of just being focused on China? We have about a minute here. Um, we've seen this dramatic run up in shares and things like uh, NVIDIA, uh, the demand for semiconductors. Um, Right now, it feels like an exuberance, uh, but how, how significant do you think this will be, it, having more semiconductors, these input parts, um, is the, sh is the uh, dramatic rally we've seen warranted? So again, I'll give you a longer term perspective, Simone, because you know, I'm, not, I'm not here to predict in crystal ball for the short term. <laughs> sure. but, but, Your best uh, sense. This is real. This is real. AI is real. AI will need computing power. AI will need data. AI will need change in organizations. AI will need reskilling of people. Anyone who's engaged in any of these topics is really going to create value for themselves, for their shareholders, for their customers. And actually, it'll improve society. The fact that you can have people leverage education and healthcare at almost zero cost, which is going to become real over time, is something to really look forward to. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a great perspective to get things on not just emerging markets, but then also about whether AI is just hype or if there's more to it here. So really great to get your perspective as well as the Fortune 500 companies that you work with. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.